If last week was a little bit too much for you, this week will be nice and easy. Maybe. No. No, it won't. But this isn't just a big game of can the pastor make my brain hurt? Based on the good, great, awe-inspiring experience that we're entering into with Revelation and, and that I'm encouraging you into as someone that's been there, we're going to wade into the deep water a bit more than many of us are comfortable with. So I want to give you a life vest. Sound about right? We're going to wade deep into the waters. I'm going to give you a life vest as the former lifeguard in me if we're going to exercise in the deep today. I want to make sure each of us has a life vest. So here it is. Before we even get out of the boat, if you hear nothing else today, John's signal in how to read this apocalyptic revelation starts with grasping the concept of time, or at least as much as God tells us about it. With time, there is a sense of immediacy and imminency from the God that is outside of it. That's your life vest. Strap it on, hold it close when we get deeper, and it, it gets tougher to physically hold your head up. This, this metaphor really works, doesn't it? <laughs> for you and for me, time has a sense of immediacy and imminency. With how God's apocalyptic revelation plan is played out. And we hear all this, we receive all this from the God that is outside of time. He can be trusted, He can be obeyed. His love, His grace, power, and kingdom, and His plan is unmasked for us in the great reveal. Keep track of that life vest, what we just said there. I'll be making sure it's still there as we, we go on swimming. Revelation 1, 1 through 8. That's today's passage. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. <laughs> Wait, that, 
That doesn't sound so bad, does it? <laughs> Some of you are reading those first eight verses in, in Revelation, and you're like, hey, look, I'm doing it. I'm in Revelation, kind of like Kevin McAllister from Home Alone. You feel like running around saying, I'm not afraid anymore. <laughs> in his prologue, John is signaling with his word choice in how readers should begin preparing themselves to read this. If I started a speech with some rich, poetic adjectives and metaphors all over the place, you would hopefully be preparing for some emotional things to follow. Here's some of those terms John uses. The revelation or apocalypse. Show. Make known, like make a sign known. All that he saw. Behold. All English terms representing our translator's best efforts to prepare you and I for the following book that is going to use symbolic visions that make hidden realities of history visible. The stuff that's there, we need to see it. That sounds exciting, right? In the early church, in fact, for the majority of history, when there were no shared scriptures for people to have in hand, one would read aloud as others listened. So hearing, receiving, and taking in the words of the prophecy come with a divine blessing. You and I are blessed as we read and speak and even listen to this, provided that we respond accordingly, like all of Scripture. If we read it and just forget about it, elsewhere, James tells us that's like going to the mirror and seeing we're an absolute mess, like boogers all over the place and eye gunk and our hair messed up and then walk away doing nothing about it. And not only are we blessed, but we are blessed for the time is near. In week one, I'm hoping you remember that I shared that one of the two keys to understanding Revelation is to know how it draws heavily on the Old Testament. Because right here, here's one of those phrases that we could miss or misapply if we don't have that Old Testament background, those Old Testament eyes. You and I could read, the time is near, and think, well, hurry up then. Let's go, clock's ticking. Or even worse, when certain periods of time continue to pass, like 2,000 years or so, we could start actually doubting that it's actually near at all. We could grow frustrated. Our expectations are not met, and we start doubting the truth of what we just read. For the time is near, and maybe we go, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. And we give up. We're going to have to at least try to see the very last part of verse 3, the time is near, through Old Testament eyes first, to get a little deeper understanding behind the term, the concept. So we're, we're starting to wade a little bit deeper now. We're getting into a little bit deeper water. Make sure you got your life vest on. Make sure you remember, if you hear nothing else, we're talking about time here, how God has revealed it to us. When we get out there in that depth, I want to make sure that we know what to look for and what to expect in terms of time, because we are not going to solve 
the issue of time today. Sorry. Timing has been one of mankind's greatest struggles with God throughout all of history. And unfortunately today, I can't fix it for you. (laughs) I wish we could resolve that in one book, one teaching, but we can safely explore it a little bit. The time is near. That's also connected to similarities in 1 John 2.18 and Romans 13.11. It draws on this Hebrew mega concept of the imminent day of the Lord. The time is near, that phrase draws on the mega concept of the day of the Lord. And whenever this day or this time is talked about, it comes across as this great and terrible day when the Lord will intervene and issue just intervention and judgment. We've got all kinds of passages that I could read now, but I'm already at risk of, of going maybe a little bit too deep, a little bit too early, uh, too detailed. So I'll list them as references. And thankfully, this is all being recorded and podcasted. So if you want to go deeper and check out these references, you can do that. You can check out Isaiah 13, 6 through 16, Joel 1, 13 through 15, and then 2, 1 through 11, Obadiah 15 through 20, and Malachi 4, 5. Again, if you didn't catch all those, check out this video, go back to this point in time, you can see those references. But the imminent forthcoming day of the Lord is not just about judgment, It's also a day where he has promised to come and save the faithful. Isaiah 27, 2 through 13, Jeremiah 30, 8 through 9, and Obadiah 21. Paul, he's a New Testament guy, but I'm including him here to show what an Old Testament expert in the early first century, how he would see things. He equates the day of the Lord directly with Jesus's second coming. It's a pending and a promised part of God's plan. To see something with Old Testament eyes that I think is really cool, and it helps me grasp this idea of the day of the Lord better, I wanna swim over to Daniel chapter two, verses 28 through 29. That'll be on the screens. Daniel 2, 28 through 29. Of course, picking this up mid-story, but Daniel says this, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. God is a revealer, a shower of mysteries, of things to come in vision form, to Nebuchadnezzar. God gave those visions to the king, and then he gave Daniel the ability to to understand what they mean. These are the big picture revealed apocalyptic things that God is going to do. This is his plan. He showed it to the king, first given to a Babylonian king, and then accounted for in Daniel's book that would later be read and reread and keep reading his book by those who were in exile, those who were facing oppression and persecution in Babylon. Why did God do this? Why did God unveil his plan for a pagan king? 
because the one and only true God will be worshiped. He will be glorified. That is a balm. That's a, that's a blessing for believers and a promise of intervention and judgment for the rebellious and as a gift to his people in suffering. In this case, for those reading the book of Daniel later in exile, he is calling them to endure. And if you just caught that, what I'm about to connect the dots on, then you're already passing Revelation 101. But God's purpose that he will be glorified and praised and for his people to endure That's the whole dual point purpose of the entire book of Revelation. He is the same God yesterday and today and forever. He acts on behalf of his people. He intervenes in righteousness. His plans and the things that he revealed that are gonna happen, it doesn't change. No one can thwart his plans. No circumstance, no ruler, no era, no matter how sticky, no matter how tough or how seemingly hopeless is a threat to his plan. And he has and he will continue to intervene in all kinds of points in history to unmask that, to show his beloved people that reality for his glory and so that they may endure Before we float away from the end of verse three, back in Revelation now, make sure you got that that first strap of your life vest on secure. The time in Greek, that's, that's kairos, meaning either time or season. The time for the fulfillment and the return of Jesus is near. What was revealed to the king and then exiles What was gonna happen in the distant future now in John's revelation has a sense of immediacy. It's ripe. The season for the fulfillment of the return of Jesus is ripe. It's imminent. This is how Jesus told us to view it. Imminent, near, soon, will come unexpected or even unwelcome for some. That's life vest strap number one. Time, especially concerning the return of Jesus, has a sense of immediacy and imminency for us. Continuing through John's prologue as he signals how to read this book, he says, greetings from the wholeness of our God, the one who is and was and is to come. There's a nod towards what? Time again. That's, that's that issue of time again. If, if John were a movie director, he'd be like Christopher Nolan. All of Christopher Nolan's movies have to do with this sense of warped, distortion, creative twists on time. More on that when the idea pops back up at the end of verse eight. Like the start of other New Testament letters, John includes a greeting of grace and peace at the head of Revelation. Grace and peace from the wholeness of God. Now, this is one where I labored a little bit to find this nugget. I kind of held my breath and swam down deep, and hopefully I can, I can help surface it a bit. Even in the midst of maybe a customary greeting, something that we might read over and just go, grace and peace, and howdy, howdy, howdy. 
like he's Woody from Toy Story. John is expanding symbolically on the timelessness of God, lavishing some titles and imagery about the fullness and the completeness of God. He's talking about the Trinity here as he sees it. As he is greeting people on behalf of the Lord, he mentions the seven spirits who are before the throne. Seven spirits. You also see these seven spirits come back up in Revelation 3, 1 and 4, 5 and 5, 6. It can kind of be easy to remember there. It's just like counting. Among others, it's a phrase that's gonna keep coming up. So making a note right here at the start to understand what it means is helpful. The seven spirits is a representative term. Seven meaning completion, perfection. Hence the seven, active spirit of God in omnipresent, meaning everywhere present and omniscient, all-knowing ways. No angel, no spiritual creature or heavenly reality shares these all-present, all-knowing attributes. This is God himself. The seven spirits is John's mystical way of talking about the Holy Spirit, the mysterious third person of the Trinity. (laughs) And if you're thinking as you're pondering that or maybe making some notes on that, well, why didn't he just say Holy Spirit? Well, because he's an old man and he does what he wants. (laughs) And start stating things in rich, representative ways, that's gonna be his MO. So if the seven spirits represents the Holy Spirit, then the other two persons of the Trinity are are much more clearly or simply stated in John's greeting. Jesus is spoken of in, in very tangible terms. The firstborn of the dead, that's referring to his resurrection. Powerful over death, powerful over earthly rulers. While while the seven spirits of God is a mystical, spiritual representation, Jesus is the representation of God's love who has freed us by his blood, all very tangible, present, incarnate representations, things that are a little bit easier for us to wrap our heads around. And then on behalf of the Father, the guarantor of dominion, the one who timelessly reigns. As Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six. everything comes from the Father and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. As John opens it all up in his prologue on behalf of every great facet, the unchanging and unthreatened nature of God Almighty, He intends to bless his people with grace and peace, comfort, assurance, and supreme confidence amidst all their challenges and tribulations. Bless the people, not just with well wishes, how's it going, hope you're doing well, but with an encouragement and faith in the complete, perfect ever active, ever present spirit of God in the power of Jesus, even power proved over death for those of you believers that are facing that, even power over all kinds of kings and governments from him, I give you grace and peace. And from God the Father, Yahweh, 
I am, whose purpose across all the expanse of history is to bring his love and his kingdom. Verse seven, behold, he is coming. Let me, let me re-highlight that a bit, just really quickly for a second. He is coming, Jesus's return. The day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is imminent. That's, that's a life vest strap. Number one, God's not done. And then John adds, he is coming on the clouds. From this point, coming on the clouds through the rest of verse eight, we're gonna wade into depth where we really need to make sure that we secure that life vest on. It's gonna get deep here for a bit about the God that is outside of time. Revelation, the promises, the works, the faithfulness, the love, the kingdom of God comes to us from a God that is outside of time. For that Old Testament mind, the first readers would be very familiar with this imagery, the meaning of coming on the clouds. But likely for you and I, we just picture that as some like awesome theatrical superhero entrance, right? Cool, he's a cloud rider, sounds good. Must be a cool superpower. But we're not talking about white puffy clouds, dark clouds, storm clouds. Psalm 18, nine through 12, he bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Old Testament eyes see the cloud rider coming on a storm, on a thunderhead. Psalm 104.3, he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Isaiah 19.1, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of Egyptians will melt within them. So if you have an Old Testament mind, if you see things through Old Testament eyes, this image of the cloud rider looks like what? It's John's picture of a guy. John's clearly a picture guy with this image in his mind, talking about a powerful, timeless, imminent day of the Lord, coming swiftly upon thunderheads. It's an image of the intervention of God's judgment. Jesus, in Luke 21, 27 through 28, I wanna make sure this is on the screens. He says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Listen to the voice of Jesus. The day of the Lord is coming. It's imminent. Ultimate redemption is drawing near. With Old Testament eyes, along with the first readers, believers can vividly Picture God's overarching, timeless, and unthreatened, universal, and perfect dominion. 
from verse 6, back in Revelation now. It says this, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of, on account of him. Even so, amen. The sense of judgment, the sense of threat, the wailing, and the experience of every eye, including those who have rejected him, that have long since passed their time, the scope of intervention of God, of God's judgment, it reaches everyone. It's inescapable. No one, past or present, will be able to stand against it, and no one is exempt. Even so, amen. And to that, on the foundation of God's love for his people and the offer of freedom that he gives us by his blood, even amidst all of this, your redemption is drawing near, as Jesus said. As the day of the Lord draws near, believers can say, even so, amen. Final verse of John's prologue. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Alpha and the Omega, that's, that's Greek alphabet. For us, translation would be, I'm the A to Z. The one who is, was, is to come. This, this final piece, because time just surfaced right there again in, in the word tense there. Is, present, was, past, is to come, future, here we go. We're talking about time again. This final piece might be swimming a little bit too deep. <laughs> but in the spirit of at least trying to really grasp such epic, epic revelation, we might need to risk a little bit of a headache. As beings created in the image of God, there are things that we share with God. Attributes that that he reflects through his creation. These are called communicable attributes of God, things he shares with us, our soul nature, the fact that we have souls, the sense of goodness, ethics, justice. These are communicable attributes that God shares with us. Then there's incommunicable attributes of God, unchanging, infinite, without measure or duration, omnipotence. Timelessness is one of those incommunicable traits. God's timelessness is something that is unique to God alone. Our souls do live eternally, but they weren't pre-existent and limitless like God is. Here's God's timelessness according to a smart guy named Wayne Grudem. It's going to be on the screens. God has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in his own being. And he sees all time equally vividly, yet God sees events in time and acts in time. <laughs> Stick with me as we unpack this a bit, because this is where intelligence and logic and science and theology, they all kind of come together to actually prove the basis of what we're talking about. God's 
very being is timeless. He was before existence began. And he didn't just precede it, he created it. He created time and space and matter. I wanna go back to Grudem. The study of physics tells us that matter and time and space must all occur together. If there is no matter, there is no space or time either. Thus, before God created the universe, there was no time, at least not in the sense of a succession of moments one after another. Therefore, when God created the universe, he also created time. When God began to create the universe, time began. And there began to be a succession of moments and events one after another. And time depends on God's eternal being and power to keep it existing. So when God tells Moses, I am, when Jesus tells his Jewish adversaries before Abraham was, I am, it meant a claim of exclusive divine timelessness, being above time, being the creator and sustainer and ruler of time. And if I've lost you underwater, that your head dipped down a little bit and you're starting to drown, this next one might be a little bit easier for us to wrap our heads around. God sees all time equally vividly clearly, exactly, in a way we might consider to be present. Say we finish a long novel, and before putting it back on the shelf, we kind of thumb through it to go back over the occurrences of events throughout the novel. For a moment, things that transpired over periods of a long period of time can seem to be present once again for us. It's a flawed analogy because God is actually involved and we're not static, but creatures of free will, but maybe it's somewhat helpful. Psalm 90 verse four, a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. And then the New Testament, Peter expands that it actually works both ways. And I love this because did you catch who I just said? Peter that bumbling guy that we all always like to say is kind of a little bit thick. At least he got this. 2 Peter 3, 8. With the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God is infinitely beholding the expanse of time. And he is intricately in every moment of time and involved in time. That's because God's experience of time isn't just due to his great level of patience. He has a completely different experience of time than you and I do, who experience time as a succession of moments. Try to picture this. God stands above time, above all the chapters in the past, above where we exist in the present, and above the imminent day of the Lord. He knows exactly the right time to move. Or as scripture often says, 
when the time had fully come to act. He's perfect, surgical in that. Some references for you adventure seekers that this wasn't deep enough. <laughs> Read Galatians 4, 4 through 5, or Acts 17, 30 through 31. That's a depth I won't even go into. <laughs> the Bible from Genesis to Revelation it's God's own account to us of the ways that he has acted over the succession of time to bring redemption to his people. This is where I really hope this, this deeper dive hasn't lost anyone because now we're gonna start to surface. For those of you that are familiar with scuba diving, this is like our, our safety stop. With Revelation as a great unmasking, we can, maybe slowly, begin to grasp that sometimes even a span of time that we think God should act or, or are waiting for God to act, in the end, we can actually see that, that his timing actually proved himself more faithful, more perfect, more wise over how and when he chose to act. If we can start to grasp that, we're in a good place. Week two, Revelation 1, 1 through 8. If you hear nothing else today, John's signal in how to read his apocalyptic revelation is to grasp the concept of time, or at least as much as God shows it to us. With time, there is a sense of immediacy and of imminency for us from the God that is outside of it. All this big cosmic unmasking of revelation can really fully be trusted, obeyed. His love, his grace, his power, and even his judgment and his redemption, his kingdom and plan can be relied upon. Encouragement, grace, and peace. All right, good news. We can't possibly keep this pace and finish in 11 weeks. <laughs> so next, we're gonna be covering a whopping 12 verses instead of eight, and then we'll really start picking up the pace. For now, the author John has set the tone. And next, we're gonna be introduced or reintroduced to the main character. He's someone I'm pretty sure we will recognize but there will be some things that make it a little mysterious about who he is. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's study. If you're interested in giving for ministry and service information and much more, visit our website at timberlinechurch.org. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.